And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I am recording this podcast uh, early in the morning on May 23rd, sitting in my hotel room in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, This is the end of a marvelous week because uh, this afternoon I'll be talking with a group of some 100 to 200 graduating seniors about the steps they should be taking in their uh, first year out of Western and into the working world. Uh, I also today will be meeting with uh, students, uh, past students from the personal investing course here at Western uh, who uh, uh, have graduated. Most most of these kids will have graduated, and they're coming back to have lunch with me to discuss what the impact of this course has been on their life. So this couple of days in uh, Bellingham at Western Washington University are about really about the future, about young people who, if they make the right commitments in their early 20s and stick to their guns and, and do this through their 40-year career, uh, should have some royal rewards. Uh, now, this follows having had a, a, a great day of fun last Saturday where I addressed some 125-plus American uh, Association of Individual Investors, AAII, uh, the chapter in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, And in a minute here, I will be um, answering a number of their questions that I was not able to get to uh, during the two and a half hours or so that that I spoke there. Uh, But the, the point is that group was mostly gray-haired people like myself uh, and solving, in a way, many different kinds of problems, how to get money to last for the rest of your life, how to leave it to others, how much risk to take, a number of topics that really, in a way, both the young people and the older people have in common. But uh, the tables that I showed, those closer or in retirement, were different than the tables I showed to the first-time investors. So it's great fun to have the chance to, to meet with both groups of, of folks. Uh, it's, the, it, it's that full range of beginner to uh, retiree that uh, my foundation is dedicated to helping. So I've got a stack of 3x5 cards here. I'm going to go through these quickly because there are so many, but I promised everybody that I would do this. I didn't answer every one because some of them were so specific that uh, <clears throat> I didn't think it was appropriate uh, for, this, uh, for this podcast, and I'm sure that if uh, the people at the uh, AAII chapter uh, contact me and uh, give me a bad time for not answering their question, I will answer it directly to them. So here, let me, if I may, uh, give you the first question. Here's the first one. If many people invest in small caps, isn't there a risk of creating a bubble? Well, of course, this is, uh, uh, this is, a part of the risk of the market. Uh, there are 
periods and sometimes very long periods where a particular asset class will far outperform the market and then the market has a tendency to uh, bring it back to uh, something uh, more normal. From 1975 through 1999, uh, the S&P 500 uh, compounded at over 17%. Now, that 25-year period was followed by a 17-year period that the S&P 500 compounded at 4.5%. So uh, this is this is the norm. The problem is we never know number 1 when that period's going to start and 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 when it's going to end. But it is interesting to note that during that same 17-year period that the S&P 500 compounded at 4.5, small cap U.S. value compounded at 13.5, small cap blend at 11.2, large cap value at 8.2. So the whole idea, particularly for buy and holders, is to have a a balanced portfolio of a number of different asset classes that will go in and out of favor. Was the correction from 2000 through 2016 uh, going from a 17.2% compound rate of return to 4.5? Was that um, a bursting of a bubble? Well, I'm sure when we look backward, we can say that it that it was. Uh, on the other hand, let us not forget there is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. So there are people who are wanting to figure out a way to to keep from being a a part of that bubble or a part of that correction. And I'll be talking, addressing a couple of other questions that came up about market timing before I'm done here. Well, the next question is about timing. It says, how do you apply market timing in your investing strategy? Well, let me say, first of all, um, I am not a believer of do-it-yourself market timing. I, I don't mean that it can't be done, but my experience of being around market timing uh, officially, if you want to call it that, since 1983, um, and unofficially going back to the mid-60s, my experience is very few people actually use a market timing system the way it's supposed to be used and then stay the course, kind of, let's call it, through thick and thin. Instead, the minute that the, the timing system runs into a period of underperformance, uh, the timer uh, finds another system that's been performing well lately and, and replaces the old system. And so there's this constant hunt for something that's better than uh, what has dis just disappointed investors. What I do is I have somebody do it for me. Uh, it happens to be my old firm, but I was instrumental in developing the system there. So I find comfort in knowing exactly how that's being managed. Now, without getting into the magic formulas, and by the way, 
you, you can look at a hundred market timing systems. You can see which one worked the best for the last 10 years. Put all your money in that system. But the reality is there is no way to know which market timing system is going to perform the best in the next 10 years. So in the name of diversification, which I preach all the time for buy and hold, I also preach for market timing. So if you looked at my portfolio, a timing portfolio, which is about half of my total portfolio, the other half being buy and hold, you would see in the timing portion a commitment in the bulk of it to a strategy that is 70% equity and 30% fixed income. Now it turns out when you look at the standard deviation of that combination of, of equity and fixed income plus timing, that it has about the same return and the same standard deviation as a 50-50 buy and hold. 50% equity, 50% fixed income. Now the difference is, is that that 70-30 uh, is being comprised of dozens of different asset classes through mutual funds and ETFs. And each one of those ETFs or mutual funds are being individually timed. The timing system, trend following, and again, there are, there are many trend following systems that could work, but each one is being followed on a trend-following basis, and when that trend, by the definition of the system, has changed from up to down, that's when you go from being in to getting out, and then putting that money in a money market fund or a short-term bond fund uh, until there is a renewed buy signal. Now, uh, that's the conservative part of my timing. And then I have... Uh, really the, the most profitable in investment uh, in my portfolio has been my position that I've had since 1995 uh, in a, uh, uh, a hedge fund. And that hedge fund is managed with, uh, again, uh, mechanical market timing systems, uh, but it also includes leverage. Uh, so that uh, when you have enough systems on a buy, you actually have a commitment to more than 100%. And uh, so that's about 10% of my entire uh, portfolio. And uh, it is more aggressive. It's not, it's, it, the, the, the proceeds are not for me. Basically, they're for others uh, for the future. But uh, what I have done and I could, looking backwards, say that I'm sorry I did it, but uh, I, I rebalanced over time and took the excess profits of that strategy um, and did other things with it, either more conservative or things to support a, a lifestyle. But uh, that particular strategy, after all expenses, not including taxes, uh, compounded uh, at about 14%. And produced from 1995 uh, through uh, just the, a month ago or so, uh, uh, it produced um, about 2.3 times what the S&P 500 did over that period. 
and did it at virtually the same downside standard deviation. And um, what that really means is that if you looked at the volatility to the downside, the damage to the downside, it would be very similar to the S&P 500. Obviously, then, it must have had an advantage on the upside, and it did. And, of course, that was because of the leverage. There's no magic there, um, but it's a discipline that requires a lot of work as it holds when fully invested over a uh, hundred different different uh, ETFs and mutual funds. Uh, next question. Oh, oh, I should mention I should mention that uh, a small, a relatively small part of my timing portfolio is in what is called asset class rotation, and uh, that is not as defensive as traditional uh, trend following. Uh, it does tend to make more money than the traditional trend following, but that comes at higher risk. Again, no magic, but it is mechanically uh, uh, managed for me by the um, my old friends at the at the Merriman and uh, Wealth Management Company. A question here: It says the uh, conventional wisdom is that young people are the ones who can afford to take more risk. Then there was an asterisk. And uh, and the asterisk says in parens, active management, aggressive, uh, close parens. So so um, what it's saying is, uh, and then they go on to say, you seem to be saying the opposite, and they ask if that is true. Well, that's interesting because you see, I'm absolutely a believer that that young people should be taking more risk. Uh, I also do not consider, because something is actively managed and aggressive, that it is necessarily more risky. Uh, What I do know, well, it is more risky to the extent that you're going to pay higher fees, which is costing you. You're going to have higher turnover, which is costing you. And anytime you lose money, you're obviously at risk. Uh, but, But I want those young people to take that additional risk by having an all-equity portfolio in index passively managed uh, funds that represent asset classes that uh, are, one, more more volatile, but also, two, have historically paid a, uh, a meaningful premium for taking that additional risk. But but true enough, I do not recommend active management for young people, um, and, and and certainly not aggressive active management, because that's where some of the greatest pain turns out to be experienced using active management. Um, what do you foresee regarding robo versus traditional advisors, uh, and will there be a merger of sorts? Well, there's been a move towards robo-advising since 1983 when when I uh, started my investment management company. Um, when I look at how the business was managed then uh, versus uh, today, uh, certainly you would call it a move towards a robo-environment. Uh, now, back in those days, all of the money that I managed used market timing. And uh, in order to do the market timing, 
we would help the clients uh, set up accounts at the Value Line family of funds, Newberger and Berman family, Fidelity. And when we wanted to trade, we'd make a phone call to these organizations and uh, tell them what we wanted to do in each account. So, number one, you had accounts with different mutual fund families. And number two, you had different funds in each family and you were moving in and out with a telephone instruction. Well, today, you can have your money, for example, at Schwab. And through Schwab, you can access under one umbrella, uh, access to um, thousands of investments, different mutual funds, different ETFs, and you don't have to make a phone call and and, and trade each individual uh, account one at a time. It's highly automated. I mean, it is it is really a, just a form of robo advising. So that has been 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 certainly growing over the thirty plus years since I started the firm. Uh, and on top of that, uh, there's a lot of uh, of the other work that's done that's that's mechanical now, and that is uh, an alert uh, from the software that tells you when it is time to to look at rebalancing, depending on what the, your formula towards uh, rebalancing is. But at another level, when you talk about uh, what's going to happen to the industry uh, with robo versus traditional advisors. I think uh, robo-advising is absolutely marvelous for the first-time investor, small investors. Uh, it's, it's the same thing I would say about mutual funds, that today uh, you, you can, with $1,000, uh, you can uh, build a portfolio of big and small value growth, U.S. international, and all those things that I would like you to have in a portfolio um, and now we have the robo-advisory firms, Betterment, Wealthfront, and others, where you can have somebody managing those accounts for you so that you don't have to do the rebalancing. And as you may know, for small accounts, oftentimes the work is actually free. I don't think it'll be free forever with all of the, the people who offer it free today, again, for for less for smaller accounts, but it, it certainly is free now and encouraging young people to take advantage of it. I think any time we can do something mechanically uh, to overcome an emotional challenge for an investor that it is a step in the right direction. Now, what is happening is almost every large brokerage firm or mutual fund, well, I shouldn't say every, but many, are creating robo-advisory services. So you can get it at Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab. Uh, it's a huge growing business, and uh, I am sure uh, is... is uh, uh, going to be where most young people are going to be investing uh, their money, and, and a couple reasons. One is because it's so it, it's so efficient for young people, but the other is it takes advantage of technology that young people it's second nature to them. Whereas I have to kind of fight my way through any new 
new technology on the internet, but certainly they don't have to do much fighting. Here's a question. What is your exit strategy? And, uh, uh, that question, it turns out, wanted to know, what am I going to personally do uh, about uh, my portfolio as I get older? And uh, I think that I'm not unusual among people who have uh, been around the investment process for a long time and feel that they have found great comfort in whatever strategy they might have. Uh, with their portfolio. I don't have to take as much risk as I do. I do take the risk, and I shouldn't just say, ah, it's my wife and myself, but we take the risk of a in the buy and hold part of our portfolio of a 50-50 stock bond balance. Now, um, I, do, I could have all my money in CDs, and it would last, I think, for the rest of our lives, um, but I'd like to have modest growth. Uh, as I mentioned in an earlier Q&A there, I, uh, I have part with market timing. And between the timing and the buy and hold, I would like modest growth. But I don't see any reason uh, because I oversaved. Uh, and I did that on purpose so that when I retired, uh, one, I would be able to take out more uh, than if I had saved just enough. Uh, and uh, that I would be able to take more risk to get a better growth. I am not looking for a home run. I am not looking for a 10-bagger. I've had my 10-bagger. Um, I, am, I am looking for modest returns with modest risk, and I think I will see if I can't stay the course with my 50-50 buy and hold for the rest of my life, and my 70-30 with timing. Um, So that's my exit strategy. Uh, In terms of the ultimate exit strategy, when I die, all of my IRA that's left uh, goes to uh, my foundation, and and then the rest of the family has... uh, uh, either already been taken care of, or I mean, it's all set up for for my wife and and the and the kids uh, to participate in in my hard work and prudent saving. Um, but uh, actually, in the end, more of um, of my final savings will go to, to to charity and causes that are important to me than children. Um, I, I feel like many parents, like I've, I've done uh, a lot for my children. If I never did any more, they, they should be just fine. Uh, what has changed in your recommendations in the last 10 to 15 years? Actually, very little. If I look back at the last 10 years, uh, I may have changed. For example, at one point in the uh, Vanguard portfolios I recommended, uh, we used the investor shares. We didn't have ETFs available to us to build the portfolios on a commission-free basis that we do today at Vanguard and Fidelity uh, and Schwab uh, and TD Ameritrade. But now that we have those uh, um, commission-free ETFs available, uh, we've changed from the investor shares at Vanguard to the admiral shares. Um, as an example. Now, we've also added international REITs 
um, in the last years. They've not been around for a long time, but we've added those. And, and when we added those, we reduced our exposure uh, to the U.S. REITs. Uh, here's another question, actually, about uh, the, um, uh, they ask why are the international REIT is, why is the international REIT asset class missing from the ultimate buy and hold equity strategy that I talk about where we go from portfolio one to portfolio seven uh, and um, in portfolio one it's all S&P 500 and then we start adding 10% increments to many different asset classes finally adding the last 10% into emerging markets there is no international uh, REIT in, in, in that particular presentation because the track records just uh, go back relatively few years. Um, but we know enough about the asset class to be comfortable including it uh, in the portfolio. Uh, here's, uh, here's another REIT question. Uh, it, it says your ultimate buy and hold portfolio holds 10% in REITs. Uh, do you think it is a good idea to include REITs in a taxable account? No. No, we want REITs to be in a tax-deferred account. And uh, and so uh, if you don't use the uh, – if you're in a taxable account, you would not want to hold REITs. Um, here's one that says, why do you recommend an advisor if I have my assets in a buy-and-hold uh, portfolio? I get that question often. And I think it's because people think you only need an advisor to put together a portfolio. And I also think a lot of people believe that you can only have advisor for a long period of time and pay them 1% a year of, of your portfolio in order to have an advisor. In fact, there are advisors who work by the hour. And I recommend to everybody, when, particularly when they're getting into the final years before retirement, to sit down with an advisor. In fact, uh, if you can see that there's enough to, to, to hire a, a full-time fee-based, a percentage of assets-based advisor, uh, even if it's only for a small part of a portfolio, you know, you got a $5 million portfolio and some advisor has a 500000 or a $250,000 uh, uh, minimum, uh, I would go for the minimum. Let them help you through some major decisions and review of all the parts of your financial life um, before you give up that check every month and uh, and start paying yourself. doesn't mean you have to turn everything over to the advisor. Now, of course, the advisor is hoping that you're going to see the value of having them in the uh, in the process, but there's a ton of work that do that's done that has really nothing to do um, with the actual selection of the uh, asset allocation and the and the funds or ETFs. Now, there are some advisors that have access to DFA, dimensional funds. That's where all of my buy and hold. Uh, investments are with those funds, uh, and and uh, and I want to say all. There, I've got a couple of Vanguard uh, fixed income funds in the mix, but the equities for sure are all DFA. 
Um, and and in order to for most people to have access to DFA, uh, they uh, um, they need to work with an advisor. And so my sense is that uh, if you look at a portfolio of DFA equity funds in particular. Uh, I do believe you're going to do a lot better there uh, than you will with Vanguard. Now, I still love Vanguard. I think Vanguard's a great way for uh, do-it-yourselfers to invest. I am not a great fan of the Vanguard personal advisory service. And the only reason I'm not a great fan is not that they don't make good recommendations, but their recommendations more or less really leave out the impact of small cap and value uh, that I would want to see in a portfolio. But again, an advisor, recommending an advisor has has nothing to do with how you pay the fees. It has to do with having somebody look at the decisions uh, that you've made. I got a lot of uh, questions that were very specific. Um, There was one question about uh, this particular person has the ability uh, to uh, reduce income by retiring and and delaying his pension. Uh, And uh, it means making some changes in his portfolio and he's considering uh, going uh, from a traditional to a, a Roth, a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, and a traditional 401k to a, a Roth uh, uh, IRA when he retires or she retires. And it's a very sizable account. And um, I want to make it very clear I am not an investment advisor. I'm not a licensed investment advisor. I am basically, let's let's call me an educator, a teacher, uh, uh, somebody with a lot of experience and 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 a passion to try to help people do better with their money. I can't make those kinds of uh, give that kind of analysis. There are too many moving parts in deciding whether or not somebody should be converting to a Roth, uh, decisions about uh, um, delaying pension versus taking out uh, the money from uh, from, uh, your investments that are not in the pension. Um, And by the way, if... Again, if you, as I mentioned earlier, if you have an advisor, any good advisor today is using some fairly expensive software that analyzes all of this in depth. And uh, if you hire a good advisor uh, for, uh, for a year and you work with them, um, again, as I mentioned before, you don't have to don't have to pay them on the entire portfolio. You work that out. And by the way, there are some people who will do this analysis on an hourly basis. It's absolutely worth the price of admission to be able to have somebody crank out all the numbers. Now, there are people who know how to do all of that themselves. I've talked to individual investors who are not in the industry who took the time to get to, to, to actually learn the certified financial planners uh, uh, program, went through the the the, uh, uh, the do-it-yourself program with the organization that allowed them to understand investing probably just as well as a lot of advisors understand it. 
but very few people do that. And my work tends to be for people who are not a big time, heavy duty do it yourselfers in the planning arena, but you hire a qualified uh, uh, planner to work through that with you. And I think it'll, it will absolutely be worth uh, the cost. Uh, here's a question for a first time investor in his or her twenties and thirties. Uh, what investment would you recommend? And it looks like they're also asking about um, uh, short-term here as well as long-term. Well, regardless of the age, uh, if there's money that's going to be needed in the short-term, I am uh, a fan of short-term bond funds. Uh, My wife and I, for example, the first week of each year, we take out 5% of our holdings for retirement. We put it into a short-term bond fund uh, at Vanguard, and then we use that to fund the monthly payments that we take out uh, to live on. Now, for emergency money, uh, and you may or may not have to dip into your emergency money. That's the whole idea. Hopefully not. But in in some cases, when I was an advisor, I would have them uh, take a little more risk, maybe have, let's say, half of their money in something like the Vanguard Wellesley Fund, uh, which is a 40% equity, 60% fixed income, and then uh, the other half I would have in a short-term corporate investment-grade bond fund. And um, and so you looked at the t- uh, that whole portfolio would end up being 20% in equity and 80% in fixed income. Some of the fixed income is very short, some is uh, longer. But the bottom line is the emergency fund or portfolio now has a chance to make a little more money, uh, a little, not a lot. But when we're looking for little advantages, I don't think it's... Uh, uh, it's it's a bad decision to have let a little bit of equity into the portfolio. But for people in their 20s and 30s, I really am uh, an advocate of, uh, of an all-equity portfolio. Now, the question as to when they start moving to fixed income really has to do with how aggressive they want to be and how slowly they're going to move to fixed income. Now, you could start at age 35 putting a little bit of fixed income in there, and then by the time you're 65 and you, or whatever age you're going to retire, you might have worked it down to 50% in fixed income or 40% in fixed income. It's, it's part of your personal glide path. And uh, I don't think uh, that, that one glide path fits everyone. And in the coming year, you're going to find out a lot more about that glide path from me. And in fact, when I have my meeting with John Bogle here in a few weeks, uh, one of the major topics on on my list is to talk about that glide path. Um, There are people who really should have a more aggressive glide path with their investments. Uh, and those who just don't have the risk tolerance, okay, let's find a conservative glide path. But let's be uh, let's uh, be very uh, uh, intentional about what we do here. 
it isn't just that you're going to be 100% in equities when you're 20, and when you're 60, you're going to be 60% in equities. No, it's how you get from that 100% to that 60 uh, that's important. We can figure that out today. And you figure that out based on looking at the different paths you could take and what what would feel right. Remember, at the end of the day, um, when it comes to sex, food, and money, it's mostly an emotional decision. Even though you look at a lot of numbers, it's still an emotional decision. Uh, here's I'll talk about European markets, uh, uh, this person uh, requested. Is it... Uh, 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 is it a, a great time to uh, invest uh, in uh, now that the they've had recent elections and the political events are uh, appear to be uh, some of them appear to be worked out? Uh, uh, you know, this is gets into market timing. Um, I'm a true believer in market timing, but I would never market time based on my analysis of political events. My analysis of economics, uh, if you're going to be a market timer, I am a purely mechanical uh, timer. And so I would just go and do exactly what the system said to do about the European markets if they were on buys. And if I want to be a timer and they go on a sell signal, I want to get out. It's just that simple. Now, a lot of people want to base their market. In fact, they'll even say, I am not a market timer. I'm just making good decisions based on what I feel about the future of different asset classes, whether it's the European market or emerging markets, which has been real hot lately after being in the doldrums and losing money for quite a while. You know, that's market timing when you move around. But I do not advocate any market timing based on, uh, on on things like the political environment. I know it makes sense, by the way. I don't deny that. But I have absolutely no idea how to put together what's going on politically with what should be done about uh, about investments. I mean, look, just look back at last last November when Trump was elected, and so many people thought, with if he got elected, it was going to be a catastrophic event. Well, there is there. You know, maybe it has been a catastrophic event in the minds of some people. But the fact is, the market, for for many good reasons, decided to look at the those good reasons rather than the reasons that people were so worried if he got elected. I just don't trust myself in trying to analyze uh, things that uh, uh, things that may be may not be the things that. Are, uh, forces or variables that dictate the future of the market. There are more than 200 variables that cause the market to go up and down. And the political environment is one of the 200. Question, where do you see the market headed in the next four years, uh, given the long bull market and the current administration? Uh, You know, here we go. There's another market timing decision. Uh, I would tell people who believe in trend-following market timing systems, do what your systems tell you to do, if that's what you believe in. If you're a buy-and-holder, then uh, do I think the market's in for a correction in the future? I always think the market's in for a correction. Whether it's gone up or gone down recently, I still think it isn't. it's possible that there could be uh, a correction 
I, I don't ever take a, a stand where the top is, where the bottom is, uh, or where to get out. And now, having said that, I absolutely want to make sure if, 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 if I were your investment advisor, do you have enough fixed income in the portfolio to address any bear market whenever it comes? If the market goes down 20%, that's a bear market. But having gone down 20%, we also know that one out of every three and a half years, there's a bear market, and the average bear market's about, uh, about a 35% loss. So even when you're down 20, you may want to go in the market then because it's better than having bought in before, but there could be another 20 below that without any problem. In fact, another 30 without any problem. I love this next question. Uh, How does uh, equal weighted S&P 500 uh, compare to the uh, cap-weighted S&P 500 um, in terms of, of risk and return. Now, just so you understand, the S&P 500, when they say it's cap-weighted, it means that those very, very large companies, uh, like, well, the, the, the Exxons and, and the IBMs and the big companies of the world that are in the S&P 500, if you look at the impact on the index going up and down every day, it's the very large companies that have the biggest impact. The smallest companies on the S&P 500 have almost no impact on a day-to-day basis. On the other hand, there are investments that that are built to be equally weighted. So that very small company has just as much money, uh, there's an investment in that, equal to IBM to the largest companies, and um, uh, and what that means is is that uh, the the long term return of the equal weighted is not going to be based just on a few companies, but it's going to be based on the return of all the companies. So what's happening here? Well, first of all. Smaller companies are given equal weighting to larger companies, so the average size company in the portfolio is smaller. What do we know about smaller? Smaller makes more money historically than larger. It doesn't matter whether it's small, large, or small, small. (laughs) Smaller, small. It's still, there is that relationship between size and long-term return. Plus, What's going to happen when you equal weight those companies is you're going to pick up more value. And we know that historically value has outproduced growth. So with those two things in mind, we would expect that the equal weighted S&P 500 fund is going to make more money and take a little bit more risk than the cap weighted S&P 500. Now, In a sense, my recommendations already do that for you. In fact, they even take it further. Uh, If you look at the, I only have in my recommendations 10% in the S&P 500. There's also a 10% position in the international equivalent of the S&P 500, the IFA. And so 
if you looked overall, only about 20% of the equity portfolio is in these very large cap-weighted companies. Now, these are important companies. As a matter of fact, these companies represent most of the value of public corporations globally. So I, I don't want to throw them out entirely. There will be periods that they are the place to be. I want, I want that return, that premium, when that happens. But I am, in essence, when I recommend this balance of large and small and value and growth, etc., I'm taking care of that uh, equal weighting in a different way, and in fact, in a way that should be even more profitable than simply equal weighting the S&P 500. But if, but if all you are going to own is the S&P 500, then I would expect that you would make a little more money, and that's going to vary from market to market. Because you have a period, as we did recently, where the very large companies were the heroes, well, then it, that's going to outperform the equal weighted is, is going to underperform the cap weighted during those periods where, where the large, large growth companies are the big winners. But for the long term, uh, the equal weighted should make more money uh, than the uh, cap weighted. But I want you to have even smaller companies than just the uh, smaller companies in the S&P 500. Uh, this question starts, most retirement asset allocations have 40 to 60% in bonds. Um, and uh, during the last period from 1940s, in, in the period from 1946 to 1982, the bonds barely kept up with inflation. And, and this, the, the writer's concern here uh, is that... Uh, you're going to have a major position in bonds during a long period uh, that they uh, that they aren't going to produce a premium, and that is true. That um, if you look, uh, I've got this great book I'll be talking about uh, in the coming weeks, the Matrix book, which shows me not only the the bond return for long governments and long corporate one year at a time since 1928. But it allows me to look at every period from 1928 to 32 to 84 to any other year that I want to. And I not only can see it with nominal returns, but I have another table that shows inflation-adjusted returns. And in many ways, it's that inflation-adjusted return that's important. But here is, is what this fellow or person says. He says, what amount in dollars... Uh, or expenses, and I'm not exactly sure what he means by expenses, but let's call it, what percentage of the portfolio do I recommend to keep in bonds, assuming increasing interest rates? Well, here's, here's the problem. I don't recommend bonds um, be, because of their interest. I recommend bonds because of their stability. So, I stay short to intermediate. I don't go long-term bonds where there is very big risk on the downside uh, if interest rates spike. So, uh, uh, but but I, I don't, for example, if I said, hey, be 100% equity because uh, bonds look like they're not going to do well. They're just going to tread water for the next 20 years. If I said that, 
What it would mean is I'm exposing you to a loss of more than half of your portfolio because that's what an all-equity portfolio is going to do to you if the future looks anything like the past. Remembering, since 1970, we've had three losses of over 50%. Uh, in equities. That would be 73, 74, 2000 through 2002, and 2007 through 2009. So I would not be, if somebody if somebody is concerned that interest rates are going to go up and that they think they'd be safer in equities than in bonds, I don't think that's right at all. But you could. You could go strictly to short-term bonds. That's one put in that particular part of your portfolio uh, that is devoted to bonds. Here's one. Is there a 2017 update to the ultimate portfolio? Uh, yes. Uh, we did, in fact, uh, uh, come out with an, uh, an article. You can go to, uh, in fact, go to paulmerriman.com and then look under best advice and you'll find the 2017 update to that, uh, the result. Um, but then if you go to recommendations, you will see my Vanguard recommendations for this year. Uh, and for ETF investors, uh, actually, you'll see our latest best-in-class recommendations for ETFs. Uh, again, look under recommendations uh, on the on the top bar, and um, and I and and I still have uh, some work to do on some of the other, like Fidelity portfolio for sure in the coming weeks. But the Vanguard is all up updated. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I I don't answer questions like this, but but I'll share this question, and then I just had to look and see what he was talking about. But he asked me, or she asked me, to comment on the surprising correlation between uh, an emerging market ETF and a large cap U.S. Uh, technology ETF. And um, if by chance their prices went up and down together, uh, that would be uh, by chance because uh, one has an average size company of 180 billion, and the other has an average size of uh, I think 27 billion. One is 71 percent in Asia, uh, the other is is almost all U.S. One is mostly growth, large growth. The other has a very large position in value. So I'm not sure what that correlation is other than maybe just a random event. Uh, Larry Swedro does a a piece. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to give you the the wrong uh, uh, commodity, but he looks for something that would tell you what goes up and down with the market. What would be a good thing to watch that would tell you whether the market is likely to go up and down? And it turns out it's something like you know, sugar beets in Pakistan. If you look at the past, there is this correlation. They look like if you just knew what was going to happen to sugar beets, you would know what was going to happen uh, to the uh, uh, to the stock market. Of course, that is uh, called data mining. Very commonly done. Our minds, our minds just uh, subconsciously data mine, uh, even if we don't set out to do it ourselves. Here's a person says, uh, 
uh, and I got several questions like this, one from a 91-year-old person, and here's a 79-year-old who says, I expect to pass half of my investments uh, on to my 45 to 50-year-old children. Um, uh, what investment time horizon uh, do I plan? In other words, do I invest for my future or for the future of the people who uh, I, I'm, I would be investing for? Now, first of all, I would suggest that you invest uh, for the future of the people uh, that you uh, that you're investing for. That's that's complex, though, because if I had I've got four children, ages 22 to 52, and um, uh, so if I invest for my children, it means I, I need to divide it up into four different pots and have different levels of risk for each one. And even then, my 22- and 26-year-olds, I may see one as having a more stable life. I might then, uh, because I I think that she's at a point in her life where she's she's got a job, and she I think she has uh, high job security, even if she lost her job where she is, She's amazingly talented. The other one is just getting started out of college. In fact, she graduates next month free at last. <laughs> so, uh, uh, But she's just getting started in her career. And so uh, she has uh, uh, less uh, stability in that regard. So how would I invest with those four children? Uh, now, I suspect that most people aren't going to set up separate accounts. Um, I think what I've done is uh, uh, I've got about half of my money in equities. I do not need to have half of my money in equities. So um, in reality, I I guess I could say that that part is investing for the future, whether it's for children or charities. Um, I, I don't think just because you conclude that you're investing for your children that that means all that money goes into equities. A lot of people do that. Because an all-equity account for a 50-year-old might not be appropriate. But yes, I do think it's a great idea for a parent to invest more aggressively with that money that they, uh, that they, don't, they don't need for the future. And of course, when we say we don't need it, I, I've just never trusted that because bad things happen to good people. I've seen it so many times. What is the investment horizon for international small cap value? You know, that's an interesting question in terms of, of uh, if you're going to invest uh, in international small cap value, I guess this is what the person is after, uh, what should you be looking at? Uh, should you be looking at a, a five or ten year period uh, uh, or, or, or longer or shorter First of all, I don't think you should be in any equities if you need the money in the next five years. Now, remember I said that that my wife and I are 50-50, basically, let's call it 50-50 stocks and bonds. So I'm taking out, we're taking out 5% a year. In theory, I've got 10 years, if you, if you want to look at this like a bucket approach, but I've got 10 years of money sitting there that could cover our cost of living without dipping into the equities if I wanted to approach it like that. Now, I don't because we rebalance periodically. It's a whole other topic. But 
uh, theoretically, there's 10 years worth of fixed income. I don't care whether it's international small cap value or large cap U.S. value or the S&P 500. I see them all as one together. I do not see them as uh, separate pieces. And uh, I do know that the 10 major asset classes that I have in the portfolio, U.S. international, big, small value growth, etc., um, emerging markets and REITs, REITs being in the tax-deferred part of the portfolio. Uh, uh, from, from, from my viewpoint, uh, that is one, one holding. And, um, and I believe in having some small companies along with the large, uh, as well as the value along with the growth. So it's the same time horizon uh, for me. And then uh, the, the, he goes on to ask a question about uh, what you would expect to find in the emerging markets. Uh, I think you'll find it, all of you will find it of interest to, to, to see that, um, that, that the holdings in an international small cap value portfolio is going to be basically in developing nations, I'm sorry, developed nations, and the, um, uh, the emerging markets are going to be in the developing nations. So, uh, we would expect to see uh, China and India as developing, not developed. Others may feel differently about that, but you can go look that up, uh, and you'll see a map uh, on the portfolio page of any ETF or uh, uh, or mutual fund at Morningstar.com. I got this one in many different forms. I'll just do one of them. Will the stock market tank in the next few months um, with Trump as president. Well, look, um, who knows? Again, I go back to my earlier comments where I talked about uh, the fact that the market's gone up since Trump, Trump is elected. And um, elections and, pol- and, and, and politics uh, are separate. I remember when, and I've told this story a hundred times about uh, John, a uh, fellow out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky, who, when Clinton was elected, called me and 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 told me sell everything, and I said, well, sell everything? <laughs> Why? Well, because I don't want to own any money, have any money in the stock market as long as Clinton is president. And I talked for forty-five minutes to convince him to stay the course. Now, by the way, he could have been right. Uh, when people like myself convince people to stay the course in a well-diversified portfolio that has the right amount of fixed income to address the worst of times that you've agreed or you're willing to live through, then our job is to keep you going unless we can figure out that, no, you are no longer a 50% fixed income. Maybe you're a 70% fixed income, not for the next year, but for the rest of your life. So I I don't—I I worry about the market tanking. But remember I said there are over 200 reasons the market can tank. And very often, we don't know which one it is until after it happens, and then it's a big surprise. Remember Alan Greenspan said he did not see the the real estate meltdown coming. What? I mean, isn't that today? Because we know what happened. It's almost unbelievable that Greenspan would not have seen that. 
Here's a question. I've only got a few more to go. How to protect your money against a crash? And what this person says in parens, short-term horizon. Well, I do. I protect my money, a part of it, that's not buy and hold. See, if you're in equities on a buy and hold basis, you have no protection except how much you have in fixed income because you're not a market timer. You're a buy and holder. There's always a reason to sell. There's always a reason to buy. You just got to find somebody who believes you should be getting out versus somebody who believes you should be getting in. I belong to, uh, my wife and I belong to a, a group of eight people. They've been, we're celebrating our, our 10th anniversary, not 10th month, 10th year. And uh, we've been having dinner basically once a month together where we discuss politics and eat pasta. Once in a while, we have a glass of wine. The group is called Pasta and Politics. Uh, this month, in a few days, the dinner will be at our house. There are four couples, so we rotate, and we get to pick the topic. And the topic that my wife and I have picked, it's all about the good news for the future of the United States. We spend a lot of our meetings talking about uh, uh, the problems of education and the problems of health care and the problems of the legal system and the problems of the prisons and, and all, all of these heavy-duty topics. Uh, this time, we're going to talk about how good things appear to be, both in our economy and in our lives. And we are, all of us... Uh, well, the last one is going to be 70 in a few months. But we're all older and uh, have all had a keen interest in the both the economy and in the politics. Uh, and it is really quite fun to look at the upside. But losing money is such a traumatic thing to people that if even one little thing creeps into our brain that indicates a crash coming, it's unsettling. And when I say that I am completely at peace of mind about my own portfolio, I'm no different than any of you. I hate to lose money. I don't like to do that. And it's not because it's going to threaten my existence. It's because... I'm frugal by nature. And the idea of just sitting here and watching money evaporate in front of my eyes when I have worked so hard, you know, saving and, and delaying gratification and all those things that tend to lead to larger blocks of money, I don't like it any more than anybody else. But I do know this. I have taken every step that I think that I need to the right amount of fixed income in my equity portfolio that's in my buy and hold portfolio and the right amount of equity and bonds in my market timing portfolio. And uh, be sure you send me a check every month. I've got a fellow in a firm that manages my money. And when I call up and I want some more money for some reason, then I check will go out, it's all taken care of, they'll determine what needs to be sold. 
I just don't have a desire to take on that part of the responsibility. Partly because I, I would probably have some anxiety going through that analysis every time that I wanted to take money out. On top of that, my mother, my grandmother, my, my, my uncle all died with dementia. But my grandmother didn't call it Alzheimer's. My uncle, my mother, it was Alzheimer's. And I also want somebody, a member of the team, that's a whale of a lot younger than my wife and I are, probably 30 years younger. And uh, that's good. That's good. So I know a crash is coming. I don't, when I say I don't care, of course I care. But I've taken all the steps with the right amount of bonds, the right timing protection, and, um, and for some people, when I look at their portfolios, I ask, why, when I can sense that you're uneasy about your holdings, why are you 70% in equities? If you're worried about a crash, this is not about reducing for the next month or two. This is about reducing your exposure to equities for the rest of your life because your portfolio is built for a 30% loss or more. Anyway, it's a good discussion to have with an advisor someday. Um, with web-based companies uh, attracting more customers and causing the closure of many bricks-and-mortar stores, is overweighting REITs still a good idea? That is a great question. Um, it, it, it is uh, is probably a concern for a lot more than the REIT industry. Uh, what's going on in the uh, web base? Maybe we should be getting uh, out of any retail. Uh, tr traditional retail organization. Um, there, there's a lot that a person could convince themselves they should and shouldn't do. In fact, uh, I, I know little about technology, but I do know this intuitively, that there are firms right now that have technology that will likely wipe out other firms. They just will either cease to exist or become a small player because of new technology. And that is way more of a danger today than it might have been certainly 50 or 30 years ago. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, obsolescence potentially out there. Uh, in the meantime, um, the, the, the REITs, because I don't I don't make those kinds of fundamental judgments about asset classes. Uh, the question, I guess, will be, will the REITs continue to be relatively non-correlated to the S&P 500? And will the returns in the future be approximately the same or better than the S&P 500? Um, I have no reason at this point. What you're talking about, I think, is pretty generally a piece of information that's known by professionals and I suspect amateurs as well. Uh, and it's one of the things about about this business that's so strange. I was uh, talking to my students yesterday uh, at Western and talking about how 
believe it or not, the UK market, people have made more money over the last 50 years being invested in the United Kingdom as an index than the United States as an index. Strange. Better in small companies than large. Very strange, intuitively. But so. So, could be right. Could be right. I, I still have REITs in the portfolio, pay huge dividends, uh, uh, and, and of course they therefore belong in a uh, tax-deferred environment. And um, and the internationals are having a very good year uh, this year. I mean, here we go, back and forth, back and forth. That's the whole nature of the process. Now I know there were a couple I did not get to. Uh, I was either a little confused about the question and I should have had people put their name and their phone number so I could call them if I had a question, but I forgot to ask that or an email address. Uh, but, uh, I really appreciate all of you who came out to join me. Uh, I hope, I think the last time I spoke at the local AAII chapter was 2014 here we are, 2017, and I'm hoping in 2020, my brain will still and my mouth will still be able to deliver a meaningful presentation to the wonderful people with the AAII organization. Uh, if those of you that are not members of AAII, if you are really on the quest to find out all about investing, uh, it is a... Uh, uh, a low-risk way. When I say low-risk, uh, supposedly the, there's no selling that goes on at AAII. Uh, it is only uh, a matter of people sharing ideas to investors who are trying to learn about the many ways to solve the investment problems. Now, having said that, let me assure you that every presenter at AAII is presenting something that is biased to their set of beliefs, and when you hear it, it will sound like a sales pitch. That's the nature of those of us who are passionate about what we believe in. And when it comes to the investment process, you know there are thousands and thousands of ways to do this right. And the challenge for all of us, I think, is to find one, maybe two, maybe three ways to do it. And when I suggest three ways to do it, I mean take your portfolio and do it one-third one way, one-third another way, and one-third another way. That's what I've done in my own portfolio. And what goes on in each third has nothing to do with the other two-thirds. But AAII is a very, very fine organization. Thanks for listening. I hope, even though this is a long podcast, you will find that this has got some information that would be of interest uh, to uh, other friends and investors. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.